0: Hi, how are you? Oops.
1: Hello, Caterina. Hello. Hello, Serena. Hello. Hello, Sessi Rahim. I've invited you up. Hello, Sessi.
2: Hey, everyone.
3: Hi, Katarina.
2: So I'm trying to find another, you know, to add topics. So there is no genetics, or I don't know. <laughs> origins of life yeah i send them a message about expanding the topics in science and health and hopefully they fix it but i, I send them an email
0: i was like we host a lot of rooms <laughs> and um, a lot of scientists and healthcare professionals can't really you know have their rooms with yeah so hopefully they change it
2: yeah thank you for that ocean maybe no no ocean It's
1: super limited. I've messaged the team as well. I haven't heard back any reply. Sissy have they replied to you at least?
4: Nope.
1: Hi, Pedro. It's time to message again.
2: Hi, Pedro. Pedro. How are
1: you? Welcome. Your mic's on the lower right, but you probably know.
5: (laughs) No, I did not do my really bad at this. But hello, everyone. Thank you for having me.
2: How did the conference
6: go? It went pretty well. It was was really nice to see some old friends after so long, without going to a conference and meeting new people also. It was really nice. The city is also amazing, Katarina. I have never been here, but it's so cute, so small, so nice.
2: You're in Lisboa or Oedash? I don't know.
5: Oh, no, I'm in Guimaraes.
2: I'm in Guimaraes. Oh, yeah, it's very beautiful. It's the origins of Portugal. Did you go to the first castle?
6: Yeah, we went to the castle. We also went to the church up top of the hill where you can take the like kind of a ferry, like a cable cart.
2: Yep, wonderful. Yeah, it's very pretty. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's nice. Is it very hot or is it okay?
5: Uh, now it's fine. The weather is pretty good, actually. It's way better than in Austin.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, if, you're, if you live in Texas like nothing else, is probably hot anymore.
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The nights are really nice. It's like 20, 22 degrees. It's pretty cool.
1: I like this travel segment of Science Society
2: this is really fun yeah me too what did you eat today that's the most important part in portugal <laughs> what did you eat what are you going to eat <laughs> please
1: tell
5: I'm, us. I'm, I'm 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 eating a lot of meat because i miss this uh since i'm from brazil as some of you might know i i live in the netherlands before and then i moved to texas and texas people used to eat meat but it's Really weird the way they prepare it, but in the Netherlands it was
6: pretty rare for me to to eat meat. So yes, I am I'm eating a lot of meat around here with potatoes and rice.
5: Yes, it's been wonderful, but I have a sweet tooth, so yeah, I'm in the right place. I really like the sweets here.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, they're right. The egg one with the liquid egg, the yellow
5: ones. The de is
2: yeah those two yeah those are really good they're originally from lisbon but they make them everywhere well now so it's really good can we
1: please hear more about that the egg one (laughs) i don't know what that is
2: well it's um kind of a filou thing around like a cup and then inside is a yellow egg based vanilla kind of pudding and then it's burnt on the top so how you have to do it you have to first bake that cup and then you put the filling in and then you really put some sugar on it and really burn the top so it's kind of a creme brulee in a filou cup kind of thing to give you an idea (laughs) that sounds beautiful with
1: lots of really good texture
2: yeah the good ones are really crunchy outside you know and inside you have like really creamy crème brûlée type of thing like really creamy <laughs> it's so good
1: <laughs> wow we have four more minutes that we can talk about sweets of portugal
2: <laughs> yeah so a lot of them are very dense so you have i don't know if you saw them maybe in pastries Pedro the the ones that have yellow filling like kind of liquidy yellow filling inside Um, they are, it's from convents back in time. And like people back in time made mostly a lot of chicken, not not too much else like in in the villages. So they made like a lot of sweets that have just a lot of egg yolk. So it's basically egg yolk, sweet egg yolk with like, um, different things around. It's, it's really, it doesn't sound as yummy as it is. And then you have fused ovos, It's like you make kind of sweet spaghetti just with egg yolk <laughs> and put it on top. I don't know if you ever tasted it before but so
5: good. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, we we have this in in, in
6: Brazil also, Fused de ovos, but uh, the the first thing that you're describing is what they call ovos moles, like Yes, ovos
2: oh. moles. That that's the one I was explaining. It's so good. Yeah.
5: Yes, we, we have those here during the the coffee breaks in the conference. They were really good.
2: That's a good thing about conferences in Portugal. You always have like every two or three hours, you have a coffee break with something to eat, right? I don't know if it's like that, but in our conferences from our uh, PhD program, GABA, we all, it's always like that, like like in the middle of the in the morning we have some breakfast and we have in the middle of the morning coffee and some sweets and lunch and then in the middle of the afternoon again and then dinner. So (laughs) we always eat that's really good for your attitude
6: yeah it's awesome you're having little snacks all the time
5: it's pretty good (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's what the doctors used to say in Portugal. I don't know if it's still the same, but you should eat five times a day and not too much and not keep the stomach empty. That would be bad for your stomach. That was what I was taught all the time. I'm not sure if that's still what they teach you, but that's the idea, I guess. And don't go into the water for hours if you ate something heavy. So I would struggle with that and... Get out <laughs> in hiding and going to the ocean although i didn't wait the two hours after eating lunch
5: <laughs> yeah has been has been fun around here um i'm gonna i think I, I I told you i'm going south a little bit i'm gonna some friends from the Netherlands are meeting me
6: there we are gonna have we rent a house i'm gonna yeah. <laughs>
5: Yes.
2: Yeah, so where are you going in the south? That sounds amazing.
5: Um, go like,
2: uh, or Algarve, or?
5: Um, I'm staying in kind of the middle of nowhere, but it's 10 minutes from Nazare. We're going to have some swim, try to surf a little bit.
2: OK, so you're staying in the north? Yeah, it's, it's nice there. Just. It's a little bit cold. You should bring a sweater. <laughs> That's the funniest principle that no one understands unless you go in North Portugal to the beach. If you're from North Portugal, you bring a sweater to the beach. And if you're from South Portugal, people think you're crazy, right? <laughs> unless Until they go to the beach with you and then they all regret not having a sweater <laughs> at the beach <laughs> because it gets really windy.
5: <laughs> okay, that's that's good to know, but but yeah, let's see. Yeah,
2: or you can. I I have some
5: I have some winter clothes here with me.
2: Yeah, you can rent a paravento or buy one. It's not expensive. So if the wind is stopped, you're fine. It's hot. It's just by the water. There's wind, and then if you go surfing, have you know you should really get a a surf um, suit.
5: A wetsuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: you 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 need a wetsuit in Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, right. And put sunscreen on. You will never feel you have a sunburn because you know it's windy. <laughs> you don't feel it. <laughs> You're cold, and you get the sunburn.
6: <laughs> I see that that can be a problem. Can you and all can
5: you all hear me hear me well? Yeah. Um, my my phone is a little. Okay, great.
2: Sorry for going on and on about <laughs> Portugal and the beach. This no, is the I
5: best conversation,
2: and we have stingrays. So conversation be ever. Be careful <laughs> with stingrays. And the thing is, though, if you get stung, and you feel like something horrible, um, you know, it's horrible pain. But if you go to the the lifeguards, they have usually there's a nurse somewhere on the beach that will give you. A, an injection the pain is gone immediately like into oh. the or whatever so yeah if something hurts all of the sudden horribly it's probably a stingray and they fix it really fast right there so <laughs>
5: that's, also, that's also good to know thank you okay keep that in mind my- <laughs> sorry
2: <laughs> my brother i'm sorry it's the last story i'm telling my brother he would surf a lot <laughs> and he would have all the suit on to not get he would get stinked by the stingray all the time and then even his feet were covered later on so he would get stung and then the only thing that was left was his fingers that were open so he got rolled over by a wave and the stingray stung in his thumb i'm sorry
5: oh Oh god poor poor guy
2: (laughs) yeah he was used to it it just you know got the nurse a thing and that was that okay now sorry um let's start and um welcome everyone to the science society and a special welcome to pietro uh dr Lia, um who will talk about this really interesting research here today and um i'm really excited and i know a lot of people here in the room are really excited about this research. So uh, let me give a short introduction. Um, so uh, uh, Pedro Leão, he's a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Marine Science and um, he in Texas. And he did his PhD in microbiology in 2018 at the Universidad Federal the Rio de Janeiro, sorry for my horrible Portuguese accent, and um, he um, then worked as a visiting professor at the Department of Microbiology at the same institute, Um, and then as a um, FSE fellow at the University of Groningen as part of the Groningen Biomolecular Sciences and Biotechnology Institute. Um, Yeah, so his interests are um, around metabolic and phylogenetic diversity of prokaryotes and um, the evolution Uh, he is currently as i said the postdoc um, at in dr brad baker's lab at the university of texas where he studies the diversity of asgard archaea and um, its role in the origin of eukaryotic life so Yeah, thank you so much for coming and sharing your interesting work with us. And Victoria would ask you a couple of um, interview questions before we go into your talk, if that's okay. Thank you.
5: Yeah, sounds great. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Katarina. You
3: there, Victoria?
1: She might, yes. Yes. I was just navigating to my screen. To um, yes, I was navigating back to the. Um, let me. I'm yeah. I'm pulling over is what I'm doing because I was driving and so I'm pulling over. Sorry. 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 Okay. I'm pulled over. <clears throat> let me turn off my GPS because it's making sounds. All right. Um, Hello, everyone. <laughs> All right. So, Pedro, as uh, Catarina said, Science Society welcomes you. We're so happy you're here. I'm particularly excited to hear about Archaea and whatever you have to share about that. Um, can't wait. But to bring you, bring us into your talk, we would really love to hear about your your personal connection to science, and and that. Um, in particular, when you first recognized that science was something that you were um, feeling connected to. So if you think back, uh, maybe reflect in your life, it could be when you were a child or any time in your life, really an experience or a teacher or parents. but but if you can tell us maybe when you noticed that you were you felt like a science kind of a person. and so thank you. That's my question.
6: Thank you. Yeah, this is this is tricky, right? Because we uh, not only for science, but for other professions like medicine or or law, or something like this. There are that, that that type of person to say, "Oh, I was born like this. i was always passionate about this topic. Always, when people ask me when I was a kid what I would like to do, and I would say I want to be an engineer or something." With me, it was not like that because. At first, I, in the beginning, when I was younger, I not even never I never knew any, any scientist. in my family, there's no one that went to academia. Uh, my, my mom and my dad uh, my dad went to college even after me or well, during the same time as, as I did. So when I was a kid, it was something really distant. But looking back now, I can remember some of my behavior that might be considered like, scientific driven. let's put it this way. Uh, for example, when I was seven, I uh, used to swim a lot in a swim school and teaching how to swim. And then when I was 14, I was like, okay, I want to I want to do this better. I want to understand how, how to make this, how to swim faster, how to be more efficient. So I started looking to videos of people swimming on um, the Olympics or in the Nationals. I went to some swim competitions and I was observing and taking notes and all this stuff. Was kind of creeping around all the same swim, swimmers that I know that I knew. So this, I think, now looking back, it's kind of a behavior of trying to observe uh, how something is done and then try to replicate. It's pretty much what we do in science, right? We we check what other groups are doing uh, on their papers and then we have some ideas of new new not only new hypotheses but uh, through their techniques how to answer some of our questions also. And when I was older, I think uh, I have a really good connection with one of my science teachers teachers in school. And then it was when I started to figure it out that, oh, I can, exists the possibility of having a career doing this type of thing, so this is pretty cool. Then I remember that I was always fascinated by the illustrations in the science book, especially the ones about the cells and the interior of the cells. And this was already, in high school or going to, to high school and yeah this professor uh opened this door to me and say oh i know some people in in the in the university here you want to visit one of their labs so i went there i saw how a lab work uh, more precisely and i said oh, you know what i think i, I would like to, to try to do this and I just decided that I would like to do to work with science, and I, as I was saying, I like the illustrations in the biology books. I said, okay, let's do something related with biology. But I always was fascinated by tiny things, like as I was saying, the illustration of the cells. I like was never really understand how you could take a picture of of a membrane or so some some stuff so tiny. So I found out this 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 major in Brazil that is specific to microbiology. And I sign up for this, and yeah, the rest is history. I did my undergrad, my master, and my PhD in the same place, in the same lab. Uh, and yeah, now I'm here.
1: Thank you very much. We're glad you're here. And um, yeah, it's interesting to hear that you were you were just always observing and always wondering why. And so it's as if you've made that that your life's work. You know, is wondering why and and um taking the path that will help you figure out your questions so can you from from that point that you left us bring bring us maybe through events up to where you are now that you've come to do this research that you're about to present
6: yeah it's not a straight line um which which makes i don't know makes me kind of proud of i guess because Coming from Brazil it's kind of hard to build up to to do science in a in a to a broader audience, let's put this way, maybe. Uh, our funding for science in Brazil that's pretty bad at the moment. It was never really good, but at the moment they are really bad. And every time I present something somewhere, it's really nice to 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 show people some other Brazilians that are outside or that they, they they can they can make it it's it's not it's not easy but they they can do it they they, they we have great scientists there uh, if we had more funding I'm pretty sure we would be uh, doing way more great things that we are doing but as I was saying I stay uh, all my my formation was in the same place in Brazil in the university the Federal University of Rio I have one great mentor. Uh, When I was an undergrad, I already asked him to to be in his lab. I remember that I looked for him three times because he was working the microscopy lab. And since I was fascinated by the drawings and other stuff, I said, OK, I want to take pictures of these cells. And I was looking for him three times, and he was never in the lab. And on the 6th or the 5th, I don't know which time exactly, but almost on the 10th. I knocked in his door and he was there, and I remember that he looked at me and say, "Oh, you finally find found me." I I now I have to talk to you, and I was like really scared, right? Because I was talking to a professor, never having never had this connection, and yeah, he he listened. But I, why I was looking for him? Why I would like to work there? I was an undergrad. I was was not it was an unpaid internship, and that's when it started. And I was. Since this day, I, I stayed there until my, took the half of my PhD, uh, developing some research, being part of and growing the lab, right, getting experience and getting more, more responsibilities uh, uh, through the years, and, and and I was developing work um, with magnetotactic bacteria, so bacteria that produce a tiny magnet inside them and can oriented uh, swim through the geomagnetic field, so the, the field on earth, and taking pictures, doing crystallography, a lot of stuff, nothing related with what I do today. And a lot a lot of stuff happened. There was some kind of a mess. Uh, I, I, I went to the US, to the University of Berkeley we, my last year with a fellowship from the Brazilian government. And when I was there, my supervisor that was with me through my whole career passed away. And this was a really a turning point for me because he was a really good friend also. We live in the same street. Um and yeah, when I was there a lot of I, I was a lot I, I was in doubt if I could keep doing the same stuff without his support, without his mentorship. But I found some amazing people that had my back, the my supervisor at the University of uh, at Berkeley, Arashko maybe he was the he's a great guy he's the one who who put me on under his wing and say you know what i I know you if you want to keep doing this um, I I'm going to have your back you yeah i'm going to do whatever it's needed to, to you to don't give up on this and i go and I went back to brazil and that's why i i have the chance to be a visiting scholar in brazil because i was the senior student in his lab when he passed away and the university needs someone to first uh, teach his classes and second to finish the um, uh, orienting the students that was there so the master's students and two of the phd students and of course the university did not have money to hire a full professor so they they offered they did not offer me but they opened this position and since i was already teaching some of his classes and everything i was really prepared to to do the exam and to be hired and that's how I became a visiting scholar. And with this position there gave me a lot of responsibilities that it was not so used to for someone at my age in that stage of my career. But this gave me some other responsibilities that were not so cool. I had to finish my PhD one year earlier. So I rushed my thesis a lot. And But yeah, all this experience uh, allowed me to apply to better things later. That's how I applied to go to the Netherlands for this FSC fellowship, which is a position that it's uh, 70% about teaching and 30% about research. And since I have a lot of experience teaching from Brazil, I was hired. Uh, and then in the Netherlands is where it started my, my my story with Orkia. Uh, there was a professor there that I really would like to work with. Unfortunately, it never worked. Um, she didn't have the money to hire me, and she was just starting her group. Uh, her name is Tessa, Tessa Quax, And yeah, never work. I, I, am, I am still fascinated by her research. I'm a huge fan of her work. But never did not work, so I was, uh, I, I went to Kroningen, uh, was working there. And about to, this was always on the back of my head. Oh, I want to work with Arkea. Some people at the university was working with Arkea, but I never had a chance to work with them. But I was teaching a lot, so it was just a dream or a story on, my, on the back of my head. And then I saw a possibility to apply to work with Brad, uh, Brad Baker, my supervisor right now. I applied for a fellowship to go to his lab. Uh, I We didn't get the fellowship. But he was like, oh, you really want to work here, right? And I said, yes, I do. I do. I really want to work with Oscar Arkea, with metagenomics and other stuff. So that's where the stories cross. Uh, Brad worked for a long time at Berkeley. And he knew Arash. And he asked Arash for a reference. He was like, oh, I don't have, we applied for a fellowship. He did not get the fellowship. But I feel like he really want to work here, how it's worked with him. And Arash was responsible for giving me a really good reference. and made Brad uh, offer me a position when he got some funding to hire a new postdoc. And when I got to Brad's lab, I have no idea how to do metagenomics. I have barely, barely no knowledge about Asgard archaea in general, just, just the general, uh, just what I heard in the papers. And, but I saw it as a great opportunity. I was so happy and people in the lab received me so well. Uh, Ian, the first author of the paper that we're going to talk today, was finishing his phd working with uh not only viruses this this story that we're going to talk today was just a cha- like one chapter in his thesis and when i saw it i have some ideas of doing different approaches to to find the same thing he was looking for and ian was already finishing his thesis so just want to put this paper out and he's not in academia anymore he became a doctor and went to and his his desires to work in the industry now he's doing a postdoc again in another place, but his main goal is to go to industry. So I had a chance to approach Brad with this new strategy to find more viruses, uh, and Brad said, why not? Uh, go for it. It's part of the project where I was hired, which is a project to try to understand the origin of the eukaryotic cell. And yeah, that's when I started to develop this this the story that I'm going to tell you you all today.
1: And we can't wait, this is great. And it was was interesting to hear all of the connections, you know, that even if something doesn't seem like it's going the way that you hope, then eventually it brings you here. And and so at this point, you're welcome to begin your talk and you see that your link is pinned so you can um, lead people through the slides. And also if you would prefer to have your Q and A following your talk, then that's great, we're here for you. And if you would prefer that uh Q&A drives the body of your discussion, then that's up to you too. Sometimes people put questions in the room chat and we are all here to moderate that for you. So you um, don't need to worry about anything except uh, relaxing and delivering your talk and letting us know what we can do. So thank you so much, Pedro.
6: Awesome, thank you, Victoria, for the questions. And- yeah, I think I, I prefer to do like a conversation. I don't see this as a talk per se. If anyone if it's not too messy, if someone had a question in the middle of what I'm saying or if you want me to talk a little bit more about a specific thing, please let me know. I, I I'm glad to, to stop and to go back to some slide that were more interesting to someone. So just, just let me know I'm I'm really flexible on how this is gonna go.
5: Uh, yes,
1: yeah. uh, yeah, the mic is yours. Take it away.
6: All right. So if people want to follow through the slides, that's great. If don't, that's also great. But as I was saying in the beginning, uh, I'm a postdoc at the Baker lab, the university of Texas at Austin, uh, as part of the Marine Science Institute. And, um, the project, the fund, the, the funding to the project that I work on uh, came from the Moore and Simons Foundation, so it's a private foundation that, that do that gave funding to science. And the whole idea of the project, like the big the big picture, is to understand the origin of the eukaryotes. So, how the first eukaryotic cell was formed. And one of the branches is to try to understand viruses that infect as archaea. In the next couple of slides, I will try to link why osgars are important for the eukaryogenesis for the origin of the eukaryotes and where viruses can be mixed in this story Uh, but just to have a just to have a short uh, introduction about viruses and other stuff uh, the second slide i show uh, them i show microbiology numbers let's put this way uh, you can you, you read a lot in the microbiology um, papers and the stories they tell that you, we live in a microbial world, right? That microbes are all over. You have microbes in your skin, you have them on Earth, on the on water, even on the air. Nowadays, we know we have microbes. But if we put this in numbers, what does this mean? So we have in the, the whole planet Earth, we have around 7 billion people, a little bit more. Uh, we have an estimation of uh, 100 billion fishes in the ocean, fish in the ocean, uh, 10 to the 19th uh, insects on Earth. So all, all, in all Earth, have 10 to the 19th uh, insects. And if you go outside our planet, the estimation of the number of stars in the whole universe is 10 to the 24th. And coming back here to our microbial realm, uh, the estimations that we have 10 to the 30 microbial cells on, all, on our planet. And when we analyze viruses, this is at least one order of magnitude, higher than the amount of microbial cells we have here. So if you, if you see just by the numbers, instead of saying that we live in a microbial world, we can say that we live in a viral world, because we have a lot of viruses around here. Uh, the picture, if you are seeing the picture in the slide on the right, uh i'm just putting this picture here because just to so just so you all know when i talk about viruses i'm talking about all the structures we are used to that uh that when we talk about viruses the first thing that came to 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 our minds is that sphere with the little spikes especially today with the covid uh that's the image that we see a lot on the news and on journals and everything but all these types of structures are viruses we don't have only that sphere with the spikes. We can have a, uh, a more, geometri- more geometric form, we have a cylinder form. We even have the phages. There's the viruses that can infect bacteria that have kind of that shape of a little spider or a little rocket or whatever, how you want to call it. So yeah, just to have a broad idea that viruses are also really diverse, you have really a lot of different types of viruses. And since we have so many viruses on Earth, going to the third slide, there is a lot of ways to study these viruses. We can study them as individuals. So just go and look to to one viruses, try to understand their shape, their form, their structure, how they they process in their, their genetic material. But also, you can try to understand how these viruses are interacting with the host. So how they infect their hosts, when they infect their hosts, what they're doing with their metabolism. Or we can go a little further and study a community, a population of viruses. So we have a lot of different viruses. They're interacting with the environment, how this works, what one virus is doing to the other. If I have two viruses infecting the same cell, what's going to happen? Uh, going a little more deep you can study the community. So how all these viruses are interacting with other organisms They are not infecting, but they are interacting because they are sharing the same space. And in a broader view, even more broad, you can try to understand why this, how, what's the impact of these viruses in the ecosystems that we have. So in the oceans, in the glaciers, uh, in the hydrothermal vents, uh, in the medical, in, in inside hospitals. So yes, there's a lot of different layers that you can uh, use to study viruses, but of course they're all interconnect. A lot of these viruses that I'm gonna talk today, all the viruses that I'm gonna talk today actually, but most of the viruses, uh, we cannot cultivate them. So they are really unknown to us. We know they are in the environment, but it's really hard to recover them in a lab in and to look through them with more details. When we study, when one of the tools that we can use to study things that we cannot cultivate, so things that we know there are present in the environment but we don't have the tools to have them in the lab, is through metagenomics. So metagenomics seems like a really uh, fancy concept, but if you go to slide four, I will try to put it in a nutshell. So, metagenomics is the ability to recover uh, genomic information from samples from the environment. Basically, that that's what it means. And I'll start with us going to a site, uh, to the environment, collecting some samples. This sample can be sediment, can be water, can be soil, can be a part of a plant. Uh, we collect the sample, we go to the lab, we extract the DNA from the sample. Once you have this DNA, we send them to sequencing. So basically we put our molecule, our DNA molecule inside a machine, and this machine will read that DNA and translate to a code that a computer can read. And this code is the order of the nucleotides of that sequence. So I put my molecule there, uh, the DNA molecule. And on the other side, I'm going to receive a file with the order of the nucleotides of that sequence. So uh, order of letters, A, P, C, G. And with this information that just came from the, se- from the sequencer, we call DNA reads, these really short pieces of DNA uh, sequences. We go through a computational uh, approach to try to make them longer reads, so longer DNA sequences. This process, is we-, this process we call assembly. And from the small reads that we receive from the the computer, we are going to build context. They are nothing else more than just continuous pieces of DNA. That's how we call context. So we have small pieces. We We put the pieces together trying to align their ends to build this context. So now we have larger pieces. The next step is through some specific characteristics of this context, we try to group them together. Uh, I can try to do an analogy here that I think is really good, but sometimes you don't translate that well. But imagine that we have a lot of paragraphs from different books, but they're all mixed together in the same in the same bag. So let's say we have Harry Potter. Harry Potter. We have I don't know another book. Uh, I don't know uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, another book. Uh, yes. Let's say we have Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings uh, in the same book, and we have a microbiology book, uh, textbook from a microbiology course, and we have different. Pre- we have a lot of different paragraphs uh, grouped together. These paragraphs will be, let's say, the context, and they are inside the same book. If I don't never read any of these books, but I start reading the paragraphs, I can see some patterns, right? I mean, there there will be some paragraphs talking about I don't know. Um, Wizards, and I can say, okay, wizards. So, this is probably not part of a microbiology textbook, but can be a Lord of the Rings or a Harry Potter book. And then I have some other paragraphs talking about DNA. And I say, okay, there's definitely no DNA in a Harry Potter book or in a Lord of the Rings for sure. So, this is another group. And then you can start grouping them together by this pattern meters. And then you go a little deeper, use a little bit more. define words and then in the end the whole thing is that probably you'll be really really good in separating all the paragraphs from the from the microbiology textbook and maybe you're going to have some mixed uh, paragraphs between lord of the rings and harry potter but then you can use other approaches that is not exactly the one that i explaining to try to separate them and so on and so on so we use a lot of different protocols to try to separate what we call clustering together every piece of DNA, so every one of the contexts that belong to each individual type of cell that was present in that environment. Once you can group them together, we can start to build their genomes, because let's say in the analogy that I was doing, is it's like each different book was a different genome. So every different book was a genome for a, for a specific cell. So once we put them together, we have what we call Mags or metagenomic assembly genomes. So genomes of cells that came from environmental samples. Uh, if you see on Figure 7, you will see that the circles, the yellow circle, the red circle, and the green blue circle, they, they have some gaps, right? Because of course, if I'm trying to build a whole book based on specific paragraphs, I will be missing some paragraphs of this book. And that's okay. That's the best we can do. Um, the parameters that we use to have a high-quality mag—that's what our lab is really famous for—is that we will consider a high, a high, a high-quality mag, and we will use them to do our analysis. If they have less than 10% of contamination, uh, they have like 10% of paragraphs that sh- do not belong there, and if they are more than 50% complete. So if I have a book that is more than five, 50% complete, and I have less than 10% of weird paragraphs that I'm not sure belongs there, I'm going to use this. This is a nice book to, to recover information about that subject that I want. And yes, with the mags, is the same. Once we have this mags, we can analyze them to say who are they, where they came from, uh, what they can do, what this genome is capable of doing, and all this stuff. Uh, what I'm going to talk today here is viruses that infect Oscar Archaea. And this was recently published by us in the Breakout Lab, uh, lead by Ian, Dr. Ian Rambo, which was the, uh, uh, PhD student at the lab at the time and other two groups, one from, uh, one from the Netherlands and another one from France, from Paris. Uh, these other two, uh, works can be seen in this fifth slide. Uh, and one of them, you know, the one from the group in the Netherlands was lead by Danny Tamaric, a good friend, and the one from the group in Paris was led by Sofia Medvedeva, which I had the pleasure to meet um, during this conference that I'm attending here in Portugal. But okay, so I'm talking a lot about how metagen- if you can understand, at least briefly, how metagenomics work, now you know how we get our samples. And every, all, all the information that I'm going to present to you here today came from this max that we construct, right? But you might be asking yourself like, okay, you're talking about Asger, archaea, I have no idea what this is. All right. That's the moment on slide six. If you're following this slides, if you're not following, that's all good. Don't worry. But as I was talking with you all at the beginning, uh, the main thing on our project is to understand the origin of the eukaryotic cell, right? There is a lot of models and a lot of hypotheses on how the event that lead to the first eukaryote happened. Uh, this event we call eukaryogenesis event. Uh, the leading theory today, if you are if you are following these slides, it's on the it's on the left uh, on the six sli- sixth, sixth slide, and you can see the different type of models to explain the eukaryogenesis event. Uh, all of them have in common is that they they take into account that an archaeon and a bacterium interact with each other to form the first eukaryote. That's what they have in common, all of them. Uh, for a long time, uh, it was thought that the archaeon that gave rise to the eukaryote, so that they participate in the eukaryotic the eukaryogenesis event, belonged to a group uh, called TAC. And the bacteria that, that was present in this event belonged to a, to a class uh, called alpha proteobacteria. We thought about this until 2013. Uh, we, were ta- we were thinking about this. And then in 2015, uh, a group of researchers uh, lead in the, in the lab of uh, Dr. Thijs Etelman uh, at that time in, in, in Sweden, but then he moved to the Netherlands. Anyway, uh, they found out this group of arch this group of archaea that were named Asgard archaea. You can go back here if you want to know more of why they have this name. They're not related with any Marvel uh, copyrights uh, thing, but they found out Oscar archaea, and the first one was characterized was named Loki Archaeota. and we found out that this Loki was the closest related to eukaryotic cells. There was not an eukaryote. So we have a prokaryotic, prokaryotic cell, an archaea cell, that was the closest related to eukaryotes. So we were like, okay, uh, this is the one, this is the closest one that we can recover today that is similar to the one that participated in the eukaryogenesis event. So that's how Asgars became really famous, because from the information that we have so far, uh, Asgars archaea are the closest related to the ancestor of the first eukaryotic cell. And through more studies, uh, now, today, we discover way more groups of Asgard archaea. We, not, we don't have only Loki, we have Thor archaeota, Odin Archaeota, Heimdall Archaeota, and we also have Skadi uh, archaea. That now, today, it's the group of Asgars that are more closely related to eukaryotes. So when we talk about the eukaryogenesis event, uh, the archaea that participate in this event it's really close related to what we can recover today as this archaea. Uh, if we go back to that, uh, if we go back to try to understand what is an eukaryotic cell, uh, the, the eukaryotic cell is the cells, just like the ones that we have in our body, right? They're really complex cells. And if we see them and try to analyze, they have a really chimeric nature. Uh, they have some characteristics from bacteria cells like the their membrane it's compo- is composed of phospholipids. Uh, the process of translation, it's have some similarities to bacteria. So how you start processing your DNA to to, to go to RNA, to a messenger, and then to produce your proteins. Uh, they have some characteristics similar to archaea also, especially the replication process. But what jump jump our eye is ha- what they have that are unique from them. So only eukaryotic characteristics. And this is the presence of a nuclei, of a nucleus, and also the cytoplasmatic organization. So when you ask everybody, or which what you learn in, in school, is that how you differentiate an eukaryotic cell from the other ones is because they have a nucleus and also organelles inside them. So basically, cytoplasmatic organization through the organelles, and uh, a nuclei in in general, because they can put in a single compartment all their genetic information. So if you go back to slide six uh, and look to the models of eukaryogenesis again, you'll see that uh, the archaeon is the blue one and the bacteria is all the other stuff from different colors. And from the second model down, for the ones that are not uh, following the slides, I can try to explain. Uh, the, all these theories take into consideration that the characteristics of the cytoplasm, so the characteristics of the interior of the cell in general, of the eukaryotic cell, came from characteristics in the archaea that participate in the eukaryogenesis occurred, occurred event. And then the organelles uh, were inherited by the bacteria that was interacting this event. If the information from the cytoplasm came from an archaeon, most likely all this complexity in membranes could come from the archaeon. But maybe this is a stretch, it's just a theory, right? It's a hypothesis and all these models that you can see on slide six, uh, they're all models, they're all hypotheses. it's really hard to test them. But one thing that is kind of neglected in all this 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 the scenario of the models that we have today, it's from where the nuclei came from. So where where this came from? This came from the archaea. This came from the bacteria. How exactly all this thing about compartmentalized their their genetic material came from? And then one of the theories that the, that we have so far is on slide eight, and the question that we would after knowing now why Oscars are so important and their relationship with eukaryotes, you can ask yourself, what is so interesting about viruses that can infect Oscars? So in 2020, uh, uh, a researcher called Philip Bell came with a theory on a hypothesis to to be more precise called viral eukaryogenesis hypothesis. So what he observed is that only some type of viruses and eukaryotic cells were capable to, compre- to put in a compartment their genetic material and uncouple transcription from translation. So what he's saying here is that only some, eukary- some, some eukaryotes and some viruses could produce RNA and translate this RNA to a protein in different areas of the cell. And this area of the cell would be the, the nucleus, right? It would be, you could, you produce your RNA molecule inside the nucleus, and then you transport them outside, and then you translate to become a protein, which is the things that you're going to actually use in your cell. Uh, there is a type of viruses that we call NCLDVs, is uh, nucleocytoplasmatic uh, large DNA viruses. It, we we're going to call them giant viruses here to be easier because the, this large DNA viruses means that they're huge. So this group of viruses, they, they produce what people call viral factory or VF if we're following these slides. This, this viral factory is exactly what I was describing before. It's one way that the viruses are, are capable of uncoupled transcription from translation. One characteristics that we only see in eukaryotes. And one of these processes they, they do to uncouple this stuff is to uh, what we call uh, mRNA capping. It's a way to modify your uh, RNA so you can do this transportation from one compartment from the nucleus to the cytoplasm. And this is a characteristic only present on these viruses and again on eukaryotes. And they had they from this observation, uh, Philip Bell, the doctor Bell, he. He came with a theory that uh, if this thing of compartmentalized the uh, genetic material and means to to transport this material from one compartment to another to decouple uh, processes are only present in giant viruses in the eukaryote, this might have have come from a giant viruses through a characteristics that we that we can see in eukaryotes today, and if we think about it, and in all the originesis models that we have, we have a bacteria, a bacterium in interacting with an archaeum. So this giant virus has to have infected one of those. Uh, we don't have in nature so far described any giant viruses infecting uh, bacteria. Uh, we don't have uh, properly a giant virus infecting an archaeum, but. Through the characteristics of the archaea, that could be a possibility that this virus was, in fact, in a, an archaea. And that's exactly what he says. A giant virus is that, in fact, the Asghar and the archaea ancestor of the eukaryotes was the responsible to bring this uh, nuclei, nucleus characteristic to the eukaryotes. So basically, the theory is that a giant viruses infect the Asgard archaea that participate in the eukaryogenesis process and these characteristics of a nuclei came from this infection. So again, this is a hypothesis, but if this is true, the question that we have was, can we still find these giant viruses infecting Oscars now, like today? Can we still see in the environment these viruses and this type of infection happening today? And that's what uh, made Ian look for these viruses in some samples that we have. Some samples that we know they're rich in Askers. And when I say rich, I mean they have more than used than than other places, but still in a really, really, really low amount of if you compare the whole population from the samples. We just have a little bit of ASCARs comparing to the rest of the microbes that we can recover from there. But yeah, there's a lot of computational work. Uh, Ian's dataset had more than five terabytes, and he was able to recover more than 6,000 viruses uh, from this environment. So all type of viruses, all shapes and colors that I show on the first slide. But from all the 6,000 viruses, he was only capable to link six of these viruses to Oscar archaea genomes. Uh, how Ian did this, I can go through details if, if any of you want, uh, how you can link uh, viruses that you found in the environment to uh, to one of the mags that we have, to one of the genomes that we re- recover. But I'm not going to go into details at the moment. But of course, I can come back if anyone want to know how we can do this. Uh, but when you... So Ian found six viruses that, could, that are related to... Asgard Archaea genomes in our samples. And those was the first six Asgard viruses described. And if you go through oh okay, I can tell a little nice story. Uh, on slide nine, if you're following through the slides, uh, this this the six viruses in fact two different groups of Asgard archaea, Loki and hell right? And all this group of Asgre Archaea's, they received the name of Norse uh, gods, right? That was living in Asgard. And Ian had the idea to give some love to the animals in the mythological Norse, uh, in the Norse mythology. And he named the viruses uh, by, through the name of some of these animals. So the two viruses that infect Loki, they were named, one was named Finn here. And the other was named Skoll. Those are two wolves in the mythology. Uh, Skoll, I know that it's the the wolf that's gonna eat the sun uh, before or during Ragnarok. Fenrir, I wanna say that it's the son of Loki, but I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong about this. And there are the two viruses that can infect Hell or Kyoda. One was named Hatatosk, which is a little. Red uh, squirrel I think it's a squirrel. this' a little squirrel that walked through the, the, the walk to the, the tree of life and send messages through the tree to the different realms. and the other one was called Need which is the dragon that lives uh, below the, the tree of life. So yeah it's a pretty cool story. and archaea have a lot of this connections to the mythology which is pretty cool, makes you learn a new thing that is not related with your science at all, but it's fun. But anyway, so have the six viruses, uh, how they're named, you've just learned the story that is not in the paper. So it's pretty nice. Uh, But when we try to start studying these viruses, one of the first things we want to know, it's how is the protein content uh, they have. And if you go to slide 10, I can show you some really colorful images that what it means. So the first information that we want uh, from these viruses is to know if the proteins they have are more similar to the viruses that we can find infecting bacteria, if they're more similar to other viruses that infect archaea, or if some of these proteins are similar to proteins of viruses that can infect eukaryotes. And what we find out is that most of these proteins are very similar to proteins that can infect uh, proteins found in viruses that can infect bacteria, which for us is not really excited, right? Because we are trying to link this infection uh, of, for this, from these viruses to the origin of the eukaryotes. But if we take a closer look, we'll see that all these viruses have a, at least a tiny signature of some proteins from viruses that can infect the eukaryotes. And this is really unique because this, for the first time, this, we saw viruses with this chimeric way too, with characteristics characteristics of viruses that can infect bacteria and archaea, but also carry us together. Even if it's a time signature, this was pretty cool to, to watch. But the majority of the, the, the protein content of these viruses were similar to, were, were more related to a really well-known family of viruses that infect bacteria. Uh, that's the Caldovaryllis family. But so you would say, oh, so if they are so close to a really well-known family, they should be viruses that are really similar to the other viruses that infect bacteria. And that's that on slide 11, if you see, this is a, this is a clustering uh, process. So basically each one of these dots that you can see, it's one of the, the 6,000 viruses that we were recover from the samples. And through the protein content of these viruses, so to the type of proteins these viruses can produce, we can t- cluster them together by how similar this, this protein content is. So how similar all the proteins that this virus could produce are. And the arrows here you can see for the people without the, without the slides, I will try to describe this, but we have a lot of dots, so a lot of viruses in the samples that belong exactly to that family, uh, Calda uh, That is the family where our viruses are technically more close, to, uh, the protein content of our viruses are technically more close to. But even from, the, from these viruses, these Calda viruses, in the, image is the red uh, is the green dots, even these viruses do not cluster together with the other viruses we found. The Oscar viruses we found actually don't cluster with anything. They are like little dots. They're apart from all the other dots that uh, represent the viruses. So this is another indication that these viruses are really unique. And this cluster did not happen like this. They, they have their own little groups, probably because of this tiny sig- uh, eukaryotic signature they have uh, on their genomes that make them... Uh, Really different from the other viruses that we found, even in the same sample. Uh, if we go after after knowing a little bit more of the protein content of these viruses, the next step would be to do what we call an annotation of these proteins. So to try to understand what these proteins were doing, or how when, once you interact with the with their host, so once once they infect the cell, what they actually do through their cell, to their metabolism of that cell. And, sorry. And this is in figure 12 now, in slide 12 now. And this is a really complex figure, but if you go to the slide 13, I can try to highlight a little bit of the most exciting things that we found. For example, there is some viral proteins that once these proteins are expressed by the viruses after the infection inside their host or so inside the cell they, they infect, uh, they they can, they can mess up or they can influence the transcription of this, of this host. So one of these proteins had a domain, so one piece of these proteins had a domain called homeobox domain, and this was the first time it was characterized in a prokaryotic viruses. This usually is really common in, in eukaryotic viruses, but not in prokaryotic viruses. Why this is so exciting? We're excited. Why we were so excited about this, because why a protein that would have an influence in the transcription process in an eukaryote would be found in a, prokary- in a prokaryotic viruses? So if this protein is useful for this virus, it means that some parts of the transcription process in these Oscars they're infecting are more similar to the ones in eukaryotes because this is what virus from eukaryotes use to, to induce the transcription in their cells. So this was pretty cool and a pretty nice uh, indication that these viruses have uh, eukaryotic signatures. Uh, another protein that is pretty interesting for us is a protein modification system. So protein modification systems are systems that once your protein is ready to be used, they do little modifications on the protein addressing a different function or addressing a specific site that the protein should, should act. And this is called a ubiquitin system. And again, this is a, this is a protein modification system Found in eukaryotic viruses and also inside eukaryotic cells, even when they are not infected by viruses. But it's something related to eukaryotes also. So this is another indication that these viruses uh, they are infecting a prokaryote, right? An Oscar, uh, archaea But even though they have some characteristics that are useful inside a metabolism of an eukaryotic cell, and this is this is really exciting. Uh, Another thing that we can do, that I don't know, again, uh, if you are interested or not, but and you can see on the paper is in slide 15, uh, is that some of this virus have a polymerase B, uh, DNA polymerase B, and this is a this is a, uh, an enzyme that is uh, really important for the DNA replication of the viruses, and some of the some of this virus, some of the viruses do not have one of this uh, on their genome and they just use the one from their host so once they infect the cell they can use the DNA polymerase from the cell but this some of these viruses three of them to be more precise they they have their own polymerase so this gives these viruses a little bit of autonomy uh, during the process of replicating their DNA uh, and one thing that we, one pretty cool thing that we can do is that this protein is, so, is really conserved. So the, the way the protein is, the sequence of the protein, they are conserved through, through different uh, lineages of the cells. Uh, and so through, this, th- through, through the sequence of this protein, through the amino acid sequence that compose the protein, we can try to trace back from which other, other proteins like this with the same function, uh, these proteins are more closely related to so when we do this analysis they're called phylogenetic analysis we can see that the protein the pole bee found in fan here for example for 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 example it's more close related to pole bees that we can find in bacteria uh the one that we found in hog are closest to other pole bees that we can find in viruses and the ones in Hatatos are more closest related are more close related to the other pole bees that we can find in lascular cells so what we can the, the conclusion that we can draw from this is that the, these viruses are acquir- acquiring proteins or from all over the, the tree of life. They're not only stick. So not all bees from Asgard viruses coming from the same place. And this is pretty cool. And to end up, now when I jump in the story, I help Ian with some of this analysis, the previous analysis, especially with one that is not here, to be, to be fair. But uh, I, what I, what I'm doing now, and it's not in the paper yet, <clears throat> is to using a different approach. Uh, the approach that I skipped, uh, that I told you how to. So Ian was using one type of approach to link the viruses that we found in the environment to the Oscar hosts. I'm using a different one, and I'm using a little bit, a little larger data set. I'm using the same data set from Ian and another collection of samples that we have from the same site, from this hydrothermal vent uh, in Guaymas Basin. And through this new data set, uh, together with Ian's, uh, I, we were able to recover more than 10,000 viruses this time. By using this different approach, now we have 45 Oscar pro viruses. And from this 45, 43 are unique because two of these viruses I, I was able using a different techniques to find the same viruses Ian also found in the sample, which is amazing. And what we are always looking signs science, it's a way to, to check if the, our method uh, is working. And since we are using two different methods and we could find the same viruses, it's a really good indication that we, are, we know what we are doing. We are, we are doing a nice work. And most important is that from this 43 uh, unique viruses, and 41 new viruses that we recover, 26 of these viral genomes are complete. Uh, This is really valuable for us because this uh, tells us that all the genes that that virus had are there. So you can go gene by gene, try to understand their function and try to understand what they are possibly doing to, to, to make it possible an infection, a, produce, a production of a, new, uh, of a new viral particle once they infect the cell, how they're infecting. So having complete genomes is extremely valuable in metagenomic analysis. And on slide 17, if you wanna take a look, uh, I'm, I'm showing a glimpse of this uh, 26 uh, viral gene, complete viral genomes. We're gonna release, I hope soon in a new paper, and on the left i have a graph and for all of you not following through the slides it's a bar graph where i show the percentage of the proteins inside each one of these genomes and their function and the last bar in the graph it's a dark bar and i can guarantee you that in all the genomes except from one uh this bar represents more than 40 percent of the genome content what I'm trying to say is that all of these viral genomes, more than 40% of their proteins have unknown function. So if we do our job and try to annotate these proteins, try to find a function through homology to comp- comparing to other known proteins, more than 40% of these proteins have no function, no known function at all. So we never saw this in any other type of organism or any type of viruses. We don't have a really match that we can say okay this is more similar to this type of protein so they might have the similar function so no more than 40 percent of the protein content in this viruses are no which is pretty excited because we can find new things we can propose new things or new functions or sometimes they have the same function of a no protein but the sequence is so different and this is also really exciting to to see because probably if they have the same function, but really different sequences, this means they came from different places. And this is what drives us in, in the lab and what I, I'm really like to, to try to understand where things came from, right? Not only where the eukaryotic cell came from, but where the specific process inside one cell came from. This was inherited from another cell. This was uh, developed by a lot of different mutations that happened. So all these origin stories and this phylogeny, where things came from, are, are something that are really valuable questions for us in the lab. And yes, that's the story of the paper. Uh, we are trying to find these this giant viruses that in fact, an Oscar or and possibly uh, have some influence in the origin of the nuclei in the eukaryotic cells as, as we see them today. And if you are in the last slide, you can see a nice slide with uh, all the members of our lab. In this paper specifically that I was talking about, uh, Dr. Ian Ramble was the main lead of this paper. Brad was the, uh, Brad Baker is the corresponding author. And Valerie Deanda is another postdoc in the lab, together with me. And Marguerite uh, Langwing uh, is doing her PhD now and another lab who still work with us really closely. And she's not here in this paper, but I I, I have to thank uh, Katie Appler for all her work, putting this max together and being super helpful to all the work I have been doing to recover this new genomes are not published yet. But, yeah, that's it. If you guys want me to explain a little bit more something if I was too fast, please let me know. I'm open to questions or to anything.
2: yeah, thank you so much for this amazing talk and and work that you're sharing with us here today. It's so impressive. It's like um, <laughs> if isn't it comparable, you know, maybe for other people that are not in biology if you just look back in time and space you're kind of doing the same thing just with evolution and about life so uh would you say that's that's a good way to put it
5: yes it is it is a good way it's it's
6: like yes yeah, it's, it's trying to find pieces today of something that happened so long ago so it's really a challenge to try to tell a story. I think it's the same thing, maybe a good comparison is with people doing archaeology. So maybe it's like you find pieces of stuff that exist in the past but do not exist right now. And you're trying, trying to tell a story of how that thing uh, became that thing and how that thing was lost through, through the time. So yeah, it's a, I mean, I think it's a really fun work, a fun work to do. But it's all, all I I understand can be a little frustrating because you you always have missing links you also you always have things that you cannot explain how that thing emerged how that thing was gone so but yeah it's a good it's a good analogy yeah we're trying to look to the past try to understand where we came from
2: and it's so amazing you know that recent technology enabled you to to do this work right I mean it probably took you know, you couldn't have done this like 10 or 20 years earlier. Um, So I'm really looking forward to what, you know, technology, data, the ability to go through more data will, uh, will discover because it's really impressive that, you know, they have so many mutations and so much happened in this millions of years and we can somehow still trace back some of these uh features that were developed it's so impressive to me it's unbelievable so yeah thank you for sharing that and please everyone if you want to ask a question please fresh flash your microphone and um yeah go ahead and ask away yeah go ahead eli
7: so um I was wondering, were there any attempts when you were recovering these to uh, filter for viral particles and uh, look at the morphology, even if you can't cultivate them?
6: Yeah, so our, during our approach, we're not filtering or trying to separate the virus from the cells. We are just extracting DNA of everything and through the assembly process, so after we already have our our sequences from the from the DNA sequencing, then we were trying to find specific characteristics of viruses to, to build these viral genomes. But no, we did not try to cultivate them because Asgard archaea they are not uh, really nice to cultivate in the lab. So far, we only have one uh, one member of Asgars is a low key in culture and it's kind of in an enrichment culture kind of thing. So when we when we say culture it's like usually a pure culture. It's just just that cell growing in that media. And when we say enrichment is that we have mostly that cell but we have other things together also. So yeah, Ascarchia not are not so nice to grow in the lab. They cannot grow in the lab. So we cannot isolate the viruses, right? Because to isolate the viruses in the lab, we need their hosts also in culture so it can infect them and then produce more viral particles and everything.
7: And so, so they're still unculturable?
5: Yes, we don't have ascorachia or these viruses in culture
7: so just just a quick mention um in the late 90s uh i was in a discussion with with a few people uh about the unculturability or or, um yeah the the unculturability of the host of uh roseophages and uh in that instance which probably isn't the main story uh that you're up against um uh, my suggestion was, well, you know, maybe try culturing them at the pressures uh, they exist at and um, a year or two later, uh, somebody at Max Planck actually did that and they were able to uh, um, culture rosea bacteria and roseophage.
5: Yeah, cultivating Asgard it's
6: a big thing. Uh, people, a lot of Groups are trying to do this because you can imagine that recover information from them uh, through sequencing of a pure culture would be way easier than to do metagenomics like we're doing. But just just to give an example, this group in Japan that have this uh, low Kiwakioda in culture, they 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 found out that this first culture they had the doubling time of the cell, so from one cell become two, two. So just for them to divide, will take three three years, three years to, to double time, just to have a reference and E. coli repli- replicate like the doubling time is like minutes. So it's really fastidious and the conditions you have is really specific. And even even this one that is in culture is not in the best uh, scenario to to build, uh, for for example, for the viruses to, to, to be a reliable host to cultivate the viruses and also to develop molecular tools so you can know a little bit more about the genomes and all this stuff but but yeah i mean there's there's a lot of people trying to do this at the moment yeah, that that example uh it really
7: ties back to to uh why i suggested uh um high pressure uh, not that it was like you know anybody taking up my my suggestion at the time uh because uh um, pr- pressure can affect protein structure, and protein structure can affect uh, kinetics. And uh, if something is taking a year <laughs> to to divide, um, when you know other things in, in the ecosystem have uh, uh, much faster uh, um, uh, life cycles that, that really suggests that something like pressure, something really basic to the physical, uh, chemistry behind, uh, the enzymology that would affect metabolism and replication, uh, that just, that, that really ju- just jumps out at me as a possibility.
5: Yeah, we, Yeah,
6: this is a long-running discussion in microbiology, right? Exactly what you were saying. Even even when they can grow in the environment, uh, we always have the question or the chip on our shoulders saying, "This is exactly what I would I would see in the environment." Most likely not, right? Because even if they can grow in the lab, the conditions are really really different. Uh, Even for for organisms there that you can find in different places, right? You can see different completely different phenotypes, even sometimes different shapes, if you isolate them from an ocean sample or from the sediment, for example. But yeah, this this is always a question that we have, even with the ones that we can cultivate.
7: And 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 similar you mentioned uh, enrichments, um, you know, having the right consortia, I mean something might just like, you know, limp along, you know, and barely survive without some other organism that it, it forms, uh, either, uh, uh lifelong intimate associations with, or, or periodic close associations with, um, and, and just isn't there. And in, in the attempts that have been made, um, would be another, uh, thing that, that, uh, is, is potentially an important part of the story.
6: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If if you, I don't know if you have access to the slides, but I, if you if you want the contact, I can send you the paper. One of the eukaryogenesis model take into consideration exactly this: the e3 model. That bef- before they have the, the endosymbiotic the endosymbiotic event or the eukaryogenesis, the cells were already really close together to the other ones and one was using the metabolites of the other one. They were exchanging things, just like we see a lot of bacteria doing nowadays in their little communities or building multi-species uh, biofilms. So yes, definitely uh, one of the main reasons, I, I my guess is that one of the main reasons why we have the enrichments today is because of this, right? They're, they're been living together for so long that uh, everything's in, and right synergy that one is producing something for the other one to use and the other one is for, so if you take them apart they do not have all the components they need to survive by themselves
7: uh, another uh thing that i'll mention is uh the highest um uh photosynthetic bioproductivity uh measured in in any lab still i believe um, is Pert uh, et al. 19, I think it's et al. 1983, it might have been him on his own, um, uh, where it was um, a chlorella species, but also three other pro- prokaryotes, that is bacteria. And uh, the association um, led to like 50% higher bioproductivity than than just the isolated
5: uh, uh, microalgae alone.
6: Yeah. Yeah. This, this is, this is something fascinating, but, but yeah, it's something really, really complex. And as I mentioned before, I was working during my master, uh, my PhD with magnetothetic bacteria, with this bacteria that produce magnets. They are also really, really hard to cultivate in the lab. And, yeah, some we have some cultures today of these other ones, but uh, yeah, I have been to this side of trying to cultivate things. I have to say that I prefer to, to stay now in the metagenomics area. It's a lot of work. work that needs to be done, but it's a lot of hard work. I mean, I
7: I just wanted to know what the morphology was when I first asked the question.
6: So I can what, I can't
7: these things look like.
6: I can't link to you uh, somewhere. Uh, the paper from this Japanese group—it's uh, a weird morph- morphology. They actually have some like a tentacles or something like this. But again, uh, as we were discussing in the beginning, Eli, uh, a lot of people are skeptical if that is exactly what we would see in the environment, or if some artifact of the culture, or even some artifact from the from the microscopy that was done. So, as you can imagine, something like this—that a lot of trying to answer a big question you have a lot of people that are skeptical. And, and I completely agree with it. Have to be really careful with what you are claiming, right? So but I can link you the paper, and you can see the morphology.
3: I'm curious. I had a question um, It's fascinating about the quantity, the, you know, the variety of viruses, 10 to the 31. That's spectacular. And um, and then your slide uh, on 17 that, that revealed um, how incomplete uh, and, you know, how much more variety of structure of unknown function there is. I, I'm curious if, um, in, and I haven't looked in detail about origin of viruses, but the, uh, it w- could you comment on, um, is there, a? I mean, you, I would imagine there would be, but an ongoing process of originating new Viruses um, went through either, you know, decay of detritus in an ecosystem, and capsids taking in new material, and that sort of. So it's, it's a sort of an ongoing process of new viruses for for there to be so many in such a rich variety. Um, do you have thoughts on that?
6: Yeah, this is a great question and really interesting. Um, First, first, we have to think about something a little bit more. I don't know, more simple. Like, what we would, what we will classify as a new viruses. What, what type of differences we have to have from one virus genome to another one to say that they are different. If we have a mutation in a, let's say, in a structured protein, like a protein from the capsid, uh, that is a really important part of the viruses. That's what we would call a different one. But if we have the same type of mutation or the same size of mutation in a protein that is not a structural, but maybe in a protein that is related to a more common process, uh, this also would characterize them in the different viruses. Uh, I don't know how to answer your question because phylogeny of viruses, so divide viruses in these groups, in these families, is something really messy that we we, I'm gonna put myself inside this after participating of this conferences of viruses, but we, the study viruses, uh, we are still debating a lot on how to do these classifications. Uh, a lot of the proteins in the viruses, as, as I show in the, in the figure on slide two, a lot of the proteins on the viruses, even the structural ones, they're not really conserved. Uh, as you can see, we have different structure of the viruses, so these proteins can change. But answering more precisely your question, I'm I'm pretty sure that we have the formation of new viruses all the time. The, how this happened, I this is this is really fascinating to me, to be honest. Uh, how a complete new viruses emerge, or or if you can, if you want to go back for to more a more simple way to view, like how the first viruses uh, came. Because uh, it's just like the egg and the chicken, right? Uh, it's kind of not really possible for a virus to exist without a cell, but at the same time, it's it's possible that a virus exists before and then encounter a cell to multiply. So it's a really tricky question. On my theory, my personal theory is that when all these biomolecules were getting formed, and we don't not even have any type of cell or anything we have this concentrations of uh, biological material in a lot of different ways. And at one moment, one of them put together enough things to replicate itself. And then we start calling this one a cell and all the rest viruses. And then some of this that could not replicate themselves start to learn to merge to this one that could replicate and use the system to replicate. And then I guess the first viruses came. But how this how, how this process is happening right now in the environment, I I, I don't know. I have no idea. But definitely are. But definitely is happening.
3: I mean, it's curious because in terms of how you might uh, age viruses in the sense, or or date them, as is. I mean, would they necessarily, if if they're if they're in some sense incorporating um, sequences from decaying either eukaryotes or bacteria into into capsids um, that might complicate the analysis of, of the taxonomy right I mean in the sense that um, I mean how I, I guess it's a question of how you might date them or uh, or and in, in whether they would be acquiring sequences that are much older than them through some other, environmental mechanism
6: yes the, there is two so if in slide 11 when i showed that cluster a uh, clustering uh using the whole protein content <clears throat> this is usually how we try to try to do this let's 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 call classification of these viruses from environments because we're not necessarily saying uh, where they belong to we're just trying to Closer, closer them together to say to see uh, what are the type of viruses that are more close related to them, and this is why we use the whole protein content, right? So if they if they acquire one protein from one bacteria and another virus acquire just one protein from a eukaryote, they's gonna still cluster together because it's just one protein. So all the other proteins are together, and one important thing I think what you're saying about aging, please correct me if I'm wrong. But they cannot accumulate a lot of proteins that they are recovering from from different hosts or from different cells, because the capsule limits the amount of DNA they can put together in one particle. And they have those genes that are really necessary for them to produce a new viral particle. So what I'm trying to say is that if at one point you accumulate too many too many genes from your host you end up losing some genes that might be really necessary for you. When you infect another cell, you'll be able to produce a new particle and infect another cell. So there are a lot of new phages, uh, new viruses uh, being formed, but also we have to keep in mind that there is a lot of viruses that exist in the past that do not exist nowadays because they lose this, this possibility to to mutation or to letting go some of the proteins that were really important for them to produce new particles and to infect new cells.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's interesting, Um, that's fascinating research. I really enjoyed your talk. It's exciting to see that there's so many proteins of unknown function to discover too. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much for for coming around
0: yeah uh, thank you so much pedro that was really fascinating work and first of all i i was thinking about the biohybrids because based upon whatever you describe it's um, i mean it's we can just do it in a lab based upon the biohybrids but another point that it came to my i mean side that was about the ubiquitous system that you just found it. I mean, during your research. And I was just wondering what thoughts you have around that because when we wanna think about that, there is a lots of potential come around, for example, about the viral regulatory that you just explained about that. Or we can think about the tumor necrosis factor and even the acting filament and everything can be related to this system. And I was just wondering after finding this system, what was your hypothesis goal?
5: Yes,
6: uh, thank you so much. It's a, that's a great question. Uh, as I was saying, it's really interesting for us because it's a possibility to, it's an even more strong argument to link Asgard's with the origin of eukaryotes, right? Because if we're seeing something that is present in eukaryotic cell, and a virus, is infecting a prokaryotic cell, is using this system. It's a. It, it means that the system should be something uh, important for the metabolism of the of the of the host. And my theory, specifically uh, about the the participation of the no, not my theory, it's not my theory, but the theory that we are trying to prove here, that the viruses uh, were participating in the core event. Uh, it's. Awesome, right? Because we we are linking them somehow, but it's even more important for the the theory that puts the asker as the as the closest related to the Archean that participate in the eukary- eukaryogenesis event. Um, the ubiquitous system proteins they are part of a family of proteins that we call ESPs. Those are the eukaryotic signature proteins. So these uh, proteins are specific from eukaryotes. And when we are looking through asker genomes, not only the viruses, we are always looking for this pro- for this family of proteins because we want exactly this, this proteins with signatures from eukaryotes to be found in this Asgard archaea. So that that's what is really important to find this in viruses also. But the implications of this through the not, not to the virus. To the virus, I, I, I can't answer your, uh, to you what I think, uh, which type of processes they are doing. But I can tell you that the implications of the presence of these proteins in Asgard is a really strong argument that eukaryotes came from uh, a, 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 a similar Asgard archaea through the eukaryogenesis process.
0: Thank you so much. I see that Katerina, just you open your mic. Maybe you want to ask a question. Oh no,
2: go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much for explanation, uh, Pedro, but uh, that was really very interesting part to me. And I think that there is a, I mean, lots of potential out of this research. Thank you.
5: Thank you for the question. That was great.
2: Yeah, I see Frank, Nick, Dennis, uh, please go ahead. If you, Pedro, I want to also check with you how much time you still have with us. Um, so, do you still have time for like three or four questions?
5: Sure, sure, no problem.
2: Thank you.
8: Oh, hi uh, Pedro, thanks for uh, sharing this very interesting research with us. Uh, quick question uh, regarding the Thermal uh, vent, that uh, uh you, you get uh, the 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 sample. So, what is the uh, s- significance of this particular environment? Is it uh, does, uh, 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 could it be? Um, so, I guess my interest uh, as a layperson is the more general question. So, what is the what uh, your findings in this research uh, has uh, implications. Uh, um, for example, what Serena referred to the origin of uh, whatever, right? Origin of uh, viruses, or origin of uh, uh, bat, uh, archaea, for example. The, uh, uh, is it the, uh, Can I say this is uh, put uh, DNA f- more f- to the first than RNA? Is that a relevant question? So I guess I I was asking two uh, I'm asking two questions. First is the thermal vent, and then the uh, the other is uh, the origin uh, of DNA or RNA.
6: All right, uh, about the hydrothermal vent first. The this site is really is a really unique site because the hydrothermal vent. If people are not familiar with hydrothermal vents, it's just uh, like on the bottom of the sea, we have this little opening that keep float keep floating. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that keep floating a little bit of uh, water. They keep cycling the the water. They so it's a really dynamic place. And uh, in Guaymas Basin, so this hydrothermal vent in Guaymas, it it is special because when we do metagenomics there, we can find all sorts of things. And so since the, the 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 environment is so dynamic, it's changing all the time the type of nutrients that are available or the types of minerals. And sometimes the hydrothermal vents are active, sometimes they're not. So this makes uh, the community there really not only with, not only rich, because also they have a lot of carbon in there, so a lot of uh, food for the for the for the microbes, but because they have to keep their their metabolism always always up, so they can uh, turn up to this uh, all this dynamic that is happening there. And also the diversity is really big. You have everything that you can imagine uh, in these samples. Uh, and the second question you were talking about, uh, if there is any. Any implications in the origin of DNA or RNA through this this information that we have? That was the question. I
5: don't remember. Oh uh, yes.
6: Uh, not really. Not really. Not really what we were focusing or what we were looking into. And I'm not sure how I would link these two things. But this is a this is a really recurring question in biology in general. Uh, there are some theories that says that the the RNA came first. So the first uh, cell, the first uh, biological entity, let's put it this way, uh, had uh, stored their information through RNA, and then later they 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 start to to see like through mutations and through some other cells that DNA were more efficient. But I don't know. There, there's a lot of theories the other way around also saying that that all the systems became through uh, through store information in DNA form and then the RNA came later. But no, in our research, we are not trying to focus on understand this.
2: If I may add, uh, we had a guest speaker here a couple of three months ago um, that he, uh, he found uh, that actually proteins can form on stardust um, under very regular conditions, it wouldn't be even anything special. So um, that's another in- <laughs> thing, new uh, insight that we have nowadays. But this goes a little bit away from the topic, but I just wanted to add that. Thank you.
5: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, then, yeah, go
2: ahead. Hi Pedro, I was
3: uh, curious why you chose the Guilherme Basin and whether there have been opportunities to one like how many other basins are in maybe like North America that might be suitable for this sort of sampling and if there have
5: been anything of this nature taking place at those. I'm curious about the the larger picture.
6: Yeah, thank you, Dennis. Uh, the the Guaymas Basin, is a really well-characterized uh, site for research. And this is really important for, for us uh, to have a lot of long-time data about the, the physical chemical conditions there, also how the diversity was before. So for, for us, since we, we cannot reproduce these this experiments in the lab, it's really nice when we have a place that have been sample sampling the the samples have coming from and we have information through time if that if that place is changing too much if that the the, the place keeps it a little bit more stable so this is one of the main reasons why a lot of the researchers are doing in environment in climate spacing, because people have been doing research there for a long time but another another uh, really sincere answer to your question is because. This is one of the places there's easier to get funding to do our research. Uh, so, the collection of the samples are really expensive and really complex because it's really deep on the sea. And, uh, yeah, when, for example, this, this project, we, we use some of the infrastructures from the Woods Hole uh, Oceanography Institute. So, I know that a lot of people are interested in there. So, it's, it's easier to, to put together a crew of scientists to write a grant proposal to go to the same place. But I'm pretty sure there are some other studies in other in other basins. Uh, I know in the US, I'm not sure, but I know that in China they are, in the North Sea also they are. So to answer your question, it's a place that is, was well studied, which is important for us to have more information. And also a lot of people are interested in that. So it's easier to grab scientists to get funding to, to go to this type of places.
3: That all makes sense. Yeah, good baseline data really helps when you're Doing longitudinal observations and to be able to map the changes. Thanks so
5: much. You're welcome. Thank you for the question.
2: Nick and Parth, um, please go ahead. Yeah.
9: Uh, Hi. Uh, Thank you for the lecture. I have a very lay question, which might require a lot of time to answer, but even answer in principle would be satisfying to me. So let's say you have managed to sequence the DNA or RNA of a virus or something else. So you have a chain of bases, DNA bases. You can slice this chain in different ways. You know, maybe you can use, um, you know, uh, hundreds, 200 or 300 uh, sequenced bases or less. So my question is, how do you know what slices of this, um, you know, uh, DNA sequence is a gene? Obviously, you know, how do you determine which parts of it are active genes, which are not active genes, junk DNA or RNA? Like in physics, for example, you have a theory, uh, the theory has predictions, you do an experiment, and if the experiment matches the predictions of the theory, the theory seems to be correct. How do you do this in biology, especially in the area of uh, figuring out exactly which, uh, you know, the the map of the genes, of the genome?
6: Yeah, we, when we sequence DNAs, uh, after we, we do all that process that I was trying to describe briefly uh, through the metagenomics, uh, to predict uh, what is a protein, what it's... Uh, RNA sequence and other stuff, we have specific uh, signals in our sequences. So, for example, before we, we know what is a protein, we have a region called Open Reading Frame, or ORF, that to, to that region produce a protein, they need to have, for example, a star, star codon. So, they need to have a, one thing that we know it's a signal to start the RNA production and if we have that sequence we also need to have another specific region a signature region to once that rna is produced from that dna sequence with starting with the star codon. right after the star codon, we need another specific sequence that once that is an rna it will be a binding site for the ribosome that we call ribosomal binding site rbs so we have all these the signals that are necessary to, to things to to, to be transcribed or translate. So the enzymes only recognize these little pieces uh, of the, these DNA sequences. So those are the signatures that show to us that this is this is the start of this is the start of a gene and this is the end. Uh, are the same are the same sites that the enzymes use to recognize to start the process and to end the process.
9: Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so we have we diff- have
6: signatures to, to 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 we have signals to to understand where where a gene is starting and a gene is ending, basically.
9: Mm-hmm. Then you can determine the genes, but you would not know the function of the genes, right? Unless you do some other things.
6: Yes, to know the function of that, <laughs> this is really, I have to be really careful with my words here, because otherwise if some experimental biologists are listen, they're going to kill me. So, doing metagenomics, we will never know the function of the gene. What we're going to do is a prediction of the function, because to know the function, uh, scientists will tell you that you need to go to the lab, to the bench, and do experiments, right? Oh, like right, yes.
9: physics, all right, okay.
6: <laughs> yeah, but to do the prediction of the, of the, of the protein, like to, to see potentially what the, the protein can do, uh, after all this, after we identify these regions that we consider a protein through the signal uh, sequences, we, we do what we call annotation. So we compare the sequences to a database of known proteins. And if we have a high identity, to one protein that was uh, already testing the lab their function, we say, okay, we have this catalytic site, we have this binding domain and everything that was also conserved in this protein that was already known. So we predict that they have a similar function.
9: Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. And, and I assume the way you describe this thing, I assume uh, coming up with a sequence of the DNA or RNA basis is much more difficult and labor-intensive and statistical than just slicing this uh, chain into, into uh, g- uh, genes without you know figuring out the functions of these genes, which require many more things. Is this correct or not? Uh,
6: it is. It is, especially with the, so when you do the sequencing, that is kind of like the, the slice process that you're describing uh, after we extract the mm-hmm. DNA. Uh, if you have just one organism so if you are extracting the dna from a pure culture where you you, where you know you only have one genome this is way easier because it's just like building a puzzle basically uh at least to have the sequence right not to predict the functions and everything but in our case here what i was trying to explain with the with the analogy of the book is that we have a lot of genomes all mixed together so yeah. to to uh, to address from which one it which 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 piece of DNA uh, came from, it's really really hard work and a lot of computational power is required to run all this uh, all all these pipelines that we developed to try to cluster them together. But yeah, you're right. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, thank you.
2: Hey, Parth.
4: Hello. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you for doing this room. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Uh, congratulations to uh, uh, Dr. Baker's lab. Uh, Pedro, thank you for being here. I am fairly uh, familiar with uh, Dr. Baker's work. In fact, I have met his group at the uh, Texas ASM meeting in Corpus Christi a few years ago, where I think somebody from his lab, I think he was there, if I'm not mistaken, he gave a talk on Asgard Archaea. And I've been following, uh, we have been following your papers regularly. And, and thank you for the congratulations on this paper on viruses that specifically uh, are that are specific to Asgard-Archia. so uh, I, I don't have any specific question for him I just came up to say say uh, hello and greet him and thank you for being here but uh, the but the other reason I came up was I heard uh, talk about RNA or DNA origins right so uh, so there are I just wanted to if the mods will permit I'll just take 30 seconds to explain the current hypothesis um, the existing hypothesis so there are two main hypotheses. One is the hydrothermal vent origins of life, uh, which is probably going away uh, as multiple lines of evidence seem to suggest that life probably emerged at the interface of land and water. Uh, There's a a phenomenal paper by Jeffrey Bada from uh, Scripps Institute that talks about uh, islands that uh, probably existed, uh, small islands that probably existed around the time of the late ADN and the primordial world and uh, and uh, work by uh, Bruce Dahmer and Dave Deamer from U- U- UCSC, Santa Cruz, have shown that polymerization can happen through wet dry cycles, um, along with the work of Nick Hart and others from Tech. So that is the current emerging hypothesis is that polymerization in the primordial world was very much, could have only been possible at the interface of land and water, because you need to have these diurnal cycles of wet and dry cycles, Plus, uh, you have an inventory of amino acids that are already being delivered to planet Earth from meteorites at the time. All these things combine. uh, Now, we have moved away from RNA world to a mutually coexisting RNA peptide world, where RNA and peptide stabilized each other and contributed each other to each other's existence. And that is how the primordial ribosome was formed, which is what we work on. So that is the gist of it. So uh, if you want, I'll be more than happy to share papers. The last three years, there is a there is a fascinating uh, series of papers that have come in this particular area of research. Thank you very much. Once again, congratulations, Dr. Pedro.
5: Thank you,
6: Prady. That's 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 fascinating. Also, I that's something that I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm yeah I'm not a, I'm not catching up with uh, the new theories. I have been diving down this this uh, virus rabbit, rabbit hole but yeah i'll be happy to to talk with you more about this and it's so nice that you that you had the chance to to listen brad talking about oscars and meet some people when we were down uh in port a and corpus Uh, i have my email and if you have access to the slides i have my email in some of the slides also i'm on twitter if you if you want to keep checking uh exchange papers
4: probably you, I'll probably find your email and then probably send you an email. And uh, so I have well, just one comment more than a question about Asgard. I think it will be incredibly fascinating once we have the, I think there is, there are two genomes that I've seen. One is the Loki archaeota MKD1, also known as Promethorchium, right? That's a complete genome. Yes. The other is the uh, Odin archaeota LCB4. These two are the reasonably, co- the, Odin Archeota has nine contigs. It's not complete yet, but uh, uh, a quick look at these two genomes uh, would would reveal some interesting features. Um, I did some analysis of this. Uh, We will probably get a paper out in the next couple of months. I'll keep you posted. And uh, what would be interesting is to see how much of this genome shows signatures of horizontal or lateral gene transfer from bacteria, and how much of this show or conserved within other archaea, and how much uh, how much of the remainder is shared with the eukaryotes? That would be very very interesting when you when when we take a hard look at the deeper look at the genomes. So that's the update. So um, we are definitely interested in this particular area of work. And I'll stay in touch. I'll find out. I'll find your email and I'll, I'll definitely email you our work. Thank you very much, Dr. Pedro. Awesome,
6: awesome. Let's keep in touch and. Just to highlight something that we have been doing in the lab. Uh so now uh there are around I wanna say a hundred, but probably it's more. But there are there are some yeah, there are a hundred and something uh Oscar mags available. So this metagenomic assembly genomes. And part of uh Katie, uh our PhD student, uh part of her thesis is to characterize this new uh, Asker Megs from Grimus. And she's presenting a, a, one of, a part of her work in ISME in a conference for my, my environmental microbiology uh, next month. And she already characterized more than more than 500 uh, new ones. So soon you will and everyone will have a database of Asker Archeo uh, or Oscar genomes. That will be at least three times higher than the ones that we have today. And this type of analysis, the, the part was was talking about, they're going to be they're going to be possible to be done, and, and really excited to to find out new things on these genomes, where these genes came from, to have horizontal gene transfer, all this all these things.
4: Absolutely spot on. I couldn't agree with you more.
3: I just wanted to mention, thanks, Parth, for that rendition of contemporary thought on wet tricycles. I've always been an enthusiast of um, the role in, particularly the role in the uh, origin of the RNA world. Um, I've been, always been a, a river shore, clay, uh, wet tricycle cycle enthusiast. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's, you know, gaining, gaining ground. I, I didn't mention it Pedro earlier because I noticed that your take sort of entered in the origin of eukaryotes and um, particularly you know what was the mechanism of that symbiosis that mitochondria nucleus and and how that evolved um, but I but I, yeah I maintain a, a deep curiosity in earlier origins of, of, of how you know archaea and uh you know originated from that rna world so this has been a fascinating discussion thank you
4: yeah i also would like to add a quick point to what uh, serena just said so it is uh, there's a recent paper by steve benner's group from the uh, foundation for applied molecular revolution based in florida it's uh it's like a path-breaking paper actually there are three papers one from his group where they have shown that polymerization of RNA monomers is absolutely possible. Uh, I think they have done it on silicate or boron, I do not know. Uh, uh, So what they've done is they've actually shown that polymerization is possible uh, on crystals, number one. Number two, there are two papers from uh, Ada Yonath's group in Israel. Ada Yonath is a a Nobel laureate who, who won the Nobel Prize for solving the ribosome structure in 2009. Her group has shown That the minimal that smallest part of the ribosome, which is the catalytic, does the catalysis of the peptide one formation, it can actually be segmented further and to the smallest component possible and it will still be catalytically active, which means that the the ancient RNA world, if it did exist, it number one RNA world didn't exist. So let me correct me. RNA peptide world, if it did exist it was terminated by the arrival of the proto-ribosome, by, which was initially crude in making uh, peptide bonds. But as the ribosome itself evolved around it, uh, along with uh, other m- minor components of uh, proto-life, as we would call it, along with the proto-membrane, the, uh, that led to the emergence of uh, coded protein synthesis. And with that came the DNA, and then came the last universal common ancestor, I hope I I, I, I didn't muddle, muddle up, but that's the current picture. So these three papers, if anybody's interested, let me know, I'll be more than happy to share them. These are phenomenal papers. If you can get, I'll try to see if I can get uh, uh, our colleague, Dr. Elisa Biondi from Steve Banner's group. Maybe she can come and give a presentation here in this club. I'm telling you, it's an amazing paper and, and that group. The Steve Banner uh, is a fascinating scientist himself. He's a chemist by training. And he has actually come up with alternative DNA alphabets, uh, uh, you know, chemically synthesizing them, just which shows to prove, or not prove, the, it, it increases the plausibility of DNA alternatives when we look for life on other planets. Th- that's the hypothesis. So I'll be more than happy to share those papers, and I'll see if I can get Elisa on here. Um, uh, she's a very busy person, as we all are. But if we can if she can spend even an hour speaking about the work they do and the foundation i think it'll it'll be very enlightening for everybody thank you
3: well thank you i'd certainly be interested in those papers and um yeah through uh you know through some earlier studies and work um it, it it is the whole dna code is fascinating and and the uh, using mineral surfaces and particularly clays as catalysts, uh, there have been some some studies showing that uh, you know the, the polymerization is quite feasible. Uh, but but particularly the importance of the wet dry cycles in driving the thermodynamics of polymerization um, in cond- through condensation reactions is is key. Um, What's interesting, though, you know, certainly in the river shores is there's, you know, whatever products do emerge, is there's a steady supply of that ultimately to the ocean and uh, through sedimentation to the deep sea. So it is, it is fascinating and I keep a close eye on, you know, the, the whole question of thermal vents versus, you know, river shores, and, and uh, you know, land water barriers, uh, particularly with clays involved, um, of, you know, how, how we might piece this story together in, in, in a sequence of how that complexity may have emerged. Uh, it's all fascinating. And I'd love to hear more talks in this room about, you know, origin of life at in any of the stages of complexity. It's good stuff. Great
5: so yeah uh, just
6: just to so just to just to give a just to bring this a little bit to to my world and to to raise a, a to from the something that always fascinates me about this origin of uh, the rna world and uh, the possibility of the dna being developed uh, have been evolved through the dna processes or if this stuff happened uh of if if this rna world was was killed and then rna emerged uh one thing that always bugs me with all the theories, probably you guys are familiar with uh, patrick fortair and uh he's not he's particularly not a big fan of Oscar's but i like his theory about the origin of the, the rna and how this migrate to a dna world but one thing that always bugs me about this stuff is that there is no there never was found on RNA viruses infecting archaea. We have RNA viruses infecting eukaryotes. So we have RNA viruses infecting bacteria, but they were never found an RNA virus infecting archaea. And this always bugs me because I say, okay, if there was RNA before everything, we have to have these viruses. That's that's not possible. That this is the only ones who got uh, extinct in, in this in this whole process. So yeah, just, just to bring this to debate, that is something that is always on my mind. Well, one,
7: one speculation on that is perhaps early on, they they found an effective defense and the archaeal RNA virus, the bacteriophages, went extinct.
6: Well, uh, yeah, it's also, it, it's possible, but it's really unlikely, I would say, because yeah, this 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 defense systems that you have against against viruses in general, they they are really uh, they are really drastic. Uh, the, usually they kill the cells, right? And the, so these defense systems usually they they do not uh, prolong themselves that, that that much. So that that's one of the main reasons why they, they pack themselves in those defense islands, right? You need more than one defense system, so you can kind of grade it. Uh, I, what I'm trying to say with this is that even if we, even if the the viruses were extinct, we should be able, we you should still be able to see these defense systems in the cells, right?
3: It's an interesting point, and it plays into you know the whole who came first, and and you know there really is evidence that um you know there was there was there was complex protein and complex RNA. Um, evolution going on som- simultaneously because there's independent mechanisms for their catalysis and accumulation, and until there's something that is evolved that decides to eat them or is capable of eating them, that you know, if it, they they would continue to accumulate. And um, it's it's a good point right, uh, that you make, Pedro. You know why why don't we see them?
4: Yeah, because in extent life, the uh, see in the prebiotic primordial soup, there may have been n number of multiple pathways leading to so many substrates and products. But what eventually emerged is coded protein synthesis. So if if you do a top to bottom approach, um, the universality and the high levels of conservation point towards the uh, the ribosome. It's highly conserved. The ribosomal RNA is highly conserved. And the most conserved part is the PTC. It is almost ninety-nine point nine nine percent conserved through all the three domains of life. So I just pasted on that article that I was referring to as a landmark paper in the chat section. I also back channel to uh, Serena. If anybody else needs it, just let me know. Back channel me. I'll because I do not know who would want it. So I would be more than happy to share that paper. So the so the RNA world well, is now being fast replaced by. The hypothesis of RNA peptide world. You can also put add lipids to them because without lipids there cannot be membranes. So that is the domain of uh, group like groups led by Dave Demer and Bruce Demer at UCSC. So it's a prebiotic clutter from which coded protein synthesis emerged. There may have been other alternative systems which are now being tried in laboratory conditions. That doesn't mean that they all survive. So and it is. In, virtually impossible to know what exactly happened at the time. We can only make an intuitive approach and say these may have existed based on experimental validation of these possible pathways by recreating systems. But eventually, everything led to, uh, there was like a bottleneck which reached to the emergence of coded protein synthesis. So that's that's my take on that. I'd be more than happy to share those papers. Thank you.
8: Uh, this is a fascinating discussion. Thank you all, and uh, especially uh, for Parth uh, sharing the great papers. I, I'm interested as well. So, uh, so I, I guess the uh, this uh, and I partially answered uh, part of uh, my earlier question on the uh, uh, which one first. So, the uh, for uh, petrol you mentioned the uh, seems to be uh, a very intriguing fa- fact that uh, there is so far no known RNA virus infecting archaea. Uh, but I did, did uh, that, uh, found uh, Google uh, uh, through Google a link uh, to some uh, experimental findings that are uh, uh, finding not the virus, but the, uh, RNA uh, po- polymerase, a uh, hallmark. You know, uh, I'm I, I, uh, curious of your comments. So uh, my question for all the experts uh, on stage, is the what? What's your take on the role of viruses? So be it, uh, uh, parasitic or symbiotic uh, with the whatever the Luca, the the the, the first self uh, of life. Uh, so they they're just being playing some sort of functions that they has always been there, coexisting uh as old as rna maybe i don't know what what's your comment uh pedro and parth and pedro yeah and others Uh, any any thoughts i
5: i
6: i think it's pretty complex uh as i was saying before my personal view that is that everything exists uh and at some point some of this clusters of biological uh, signature things or i don't know even how to call it uh one of these uh primordial cells uh, let's call it or pro cells i don't know uh have that ability to divide themselves and this is what we start calling cells and then others uh, are not able to to replicate by themselves but once they integrate one of these ones that could replicate themselves were starting to be able to do it. And this would what we we call the viruses. But I think nowadays if we see the the function of the viruses, a lot of people uh, say that uh, viruses and bacteria coexist uh, for so long that we cannot call this as a predator and prey uh, relation because if it was a relationship like this, well bacteria would be extinct uh, to put this way a lot of people have this argument uh, i don't know how to put this uh exactly how to classify what type of relationship with what, what we can say is that both one, one need each other and the, vi- the type of virus infections especially that happens uh, in bacteria so to bacteriophages it's really important to regulate the amount of uh, bacteria we have in the environment especially in the ocean to make the cycling and making the nutrients available again for other other cells, and to restore the populations, restore the the dynamic of the community. So, in a broader perspective on the impact to the ecosystem, the the, the part of uh, of the of the viruses infecting uh, the phages infecting bacteria, the viruses infecting archaea, and the other viruses infecting microeukaryotes. It's really important for the chain and the equilibrium of uh, different types of ecosystems. And apart from this, on only the, the killing, let's put this way. So one, one interesting data that there is in a paper, a recent paper uh, that says that every 48 hours, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 40% uh, of all bacteria on earth are killed by by, by phage infections. So every 48 hours, uh, you have half of the bacteria kill. But of course, through their replication, this, this number, it's not so important, right? Because in 48 hours, you kill half, but in 48 hours, you already uh, have way more bacteria presence there. But yes, just want to highlight this. But apart from the, the skilling part and this, this 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 type of infections, uh, viruses we know have played a really important role in horizontal gene transfer processes. Uh, so to make the genomes of cells evolve in a faster way and become more efficient, uh, viruses play a huge role. We also have that, we, also, we, we all read somewhere sometimes that a lot of our genomes came from viruses, which is not entirely true, but it's, the, the idea is this, uh, the idea is that we receive a lot of genes that were not originally uh, or were or not only generated by m- mutations of our own genome so these two rows of viruses cannot be cannot be forgotten like the dynamic they, they bring to the ecosystem and also how they speed up this type of uh, evolution through this original gene transfers
5: You know, just a just a comment,
3: and um, I I do want to check with you again. Uh, we've been going two hours, and if you're coming up on time, uh, some of these discussions can just keep going. This would this is a prime candidate. Um, are do we do we have you much longer, Pedro? Uh,
5: not much longer, but I don't know, maybe ten minutes. Uh, I, I can I can say.
3: Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll sneak in one comment here. Um, so it, it, it certainly the functionality of the ribosome and pro-ribosomes and, and translation is a game-changing event for, um, you know, for the original life. And uh, it's curious to, in a fascination of mine to contemplate what happened before that in, in part of my interest in clays and the, the, the genetic code is, the, is noticing, and when I was doing some work on clays, how coincidentally fortunate the geometry of certain hydrating clays like montmorillonite and, and other phyllosilicates um, is that a, a, a triplet of DNA uh, happens to be geometrically compatible with the stacks in clay layers. And the um, the edges of those clay layers can become phosphatized. And the intermediates of the citric acid cycle that go through diphosphates are compatible with those stacking layers. And a significance of the wet-dry cycle or the wet-dry transition in swelling clays would would provide a mechanical force for, for those um, to actually activate and, and um, you know, catalyze different reactions in those intermediates. But in terms of looking at viruses, um, you know, there's always the question, well, so we have, we have proteins, we have glycoproteins, and, um, you know, we have RNA, DNA. The um, enzymes to produce those components would have to be operative before viruses could really emerge as an operative agent of infection. And, um, you know, the predecessors of each of these functions, you know, as we, we sort of puzzle together how they how they made have arisen, um, you know, may have very different uh, compositions than what was ultimately proved to be more efficient, uh, you know, later and replaced in terms of, you know, the predecessors of cell membranes, the predecessors of, um, you know, what would bring uh, amino acids in proximity to triplets of RNA or DNA, Um, you know, clay edges and clay surfaces are at least geometrically compatible and chemically compatible with those requirements for early catalytic catalytic activity and wet dry cycles could be the you know ultimate driving force for the changes in in favorable equilibrium but they would be much slower than anything that we would You know call living and uh, it's fascinating to sort of uh, you know try to put that puzzle together in abiotic chemistry as it leads to more of what we would start to call living
4: absolutely uh so serena you brought a very important point Um, they would be so slow Um, one of the biggest Obstacles uh, in the RNA world as well as RNA peptide world uh, hypothesis is the absence of an RNA replicase which can help make copies of RNA. There has not been a single demonstrable RNA replicase that has been found. And that is why, that is where what you just said is absolutely irrele- relevant and has some very important implications because the wet dry cycles would have definitely driven something forward, but not at the rate we would want them to. But somehow, that is the only plausible thing that occurs to me, as well as many other people in this field. Stay tuned as more experiments are being done uh, by Astrobiology Labs uh, around the US and also the rest of the world. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I I agree. This has been an amazing uh, discussion, and I'm really fascinating. It's not my expertise, but it's uh, fascinating to listen to the discussion. And, Pedro, um, thank you so much for sharing this amazing and so important work to to know where we and our nucleus comes from. (laughs) is quite important and it's still so fascinating to me that we have the tools uh to um to look back in time um like this so um yeah thank you so much for this amazing work and thank you Parth, serena eli frank uh, dr Shah, Dennis, everyone nick victoria for the great interview thank you everyone for making this this wonderful room and pedro Thank you so much, and I hope you come back one day and share some updates if you found more clues to all of our questions here <laughs> right. and yeah do do you go yeah, uh, Do you get to go on the ships like with the uh, Hole? i I worked there for a year actually at, in 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 Woods Hole, but at the Marine Biological Laboratory.
6: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I haven't been in the lab. So I, 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 I joined the lab during COVID. So we didn't have any any sampling uh, trips uh, since I arrived in the lab. But yeah, I have been in other expeditions. But no, not anyone in Woods School. But I would love to. I would love to. And thank you so much for, for having me. It was really nice discussion. I hope I can come back one day Part, part, part with the to describe here to you all, uh, uh, RNA viruses infected in fact, and archaea, or a more complex part of the story uh, on how on, on new insights on how we, we acquired the nucleus that we have today. But yeah, it was really nice to to meet you all and to discuss uh, this, our work, and other uh, fascinating uh, questions that we have.
2: Yeah, great. And enjoy your vacation, and uh, enjoy Portugal. And, uh... Yeah, have a natas on me, <laughs> thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks,
3: everyone. Thank you. Everyone.
2: Pe- thank you, Pedro. Bye.
1: Thank you,
8: Pedro. Bye.
2: Thanks, Pedro.
1: Thanks,
7: thanks, Pedro. thanks everyone. everyone. See you all soon.
8: Karina and everyone. Thank you, Karina. Three, two,
2: one. Bye.